Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TM288 Historical Theology 2 Podcast. In case you're wondering why I always start off the podcast by naming what we are, I've realized with as many audio files as I'm recording that the odds were pretty high that I would upload content from one class to another class and cause them to listen to the wrong lecture. I actually had a Spanish teacher in high school who had gone through surgery, had taken a week off and was back on campus, but was taking some mild painkillers. It threw her off just enough that she realized one time she taught an entire class in Portuguese instead of Spanish. No one in the class was able to figure out that they were learning the wrong content, and it really just threw everybody off for about two weeks. Didn't want the same thing to happen to you, so in that sense, make sure this is actually a Historical Theology 2 class that's listening. If you are, today we're going to be learning a little bit more about the history of Christianity in Africa. Now, if you were in Historical Theology 1, you probably remember a lot about the history of Christianity in Africa. In fact, many of the major figures in early church history and many of the major debates actually occurred on the north shore of Africa. Debates about the nature of the church and the authority of the bishop happened in Carthage with Cyprian. Alexandria in Egypt was a hot spot for both Christological and Trinitarian debates. Some of the most important figures in Christian history, like Athanasius of Alexandria, were actually North Africans. Not only did Athanasius play a major role in defending the homoousios, the idea that Father, Son, and Spirit all have the identically same nature, so the doctrine of the Trinity, but he also played a major role in determining things like the typical calendar cycle for Easter and helping establish the final list of books that count in the New Testament canon. So in some sense, much of Christian history is actually the history of Africa extended into the world. However, you may also recall, if you were in Historical Theology 1, that Muslim conquests in North Africa led to a diminishing number of Christians in these areas. More than that, uh, it has resulted in a lack of major circulation of Christian theological treatises, so that many of the doctrines that we considered in the Middle Ages and beyond have happened either in the Middle East or in Europe. Once the Middle East fell to Muslim invaders in the 1400s, most theological production in terms of written texts that were widely circulated happened in Europe. The last hundred years have seen a dramatic reversal in that trend, but we've actually seen a resurgence of African Christianity well before 1900. So what I'd like to talk to you about today is some of the historical events that happened in African Christianity, even as maybe African theological texts have not been as widely circulated or translated, and so have not been as major of a component in this class. One important aspect of African Christianity is the rise of African Christian empires. Perhaps the most notable of these is Aksum, which we know today as Ethiopia, Ezana, king of Aksum, had converted to Christianity as early as the mid-300s. Now, we have several different stories for how this might have happened. One historical narrative attributes the Syrian merchant Frumentius as personally evangelizing Ezana, the Negus, or king. But there's an alternative story that's a little bit more interesting, and so I'd like to hope that this is actually true. 
According to this account, a Christian philosopher was attempting to travel to India as a missionary, but his ship was wrecked by pirates and his ship crashed. Two young men who served as his wards survived the shipwreck and washed ashore near Axum. When they met some individuals there, they shared the message of Christianity and much of the city converted. One of the young men actually became the first bishop of Axum. Well, when Azana of Ethiopia converted, it was a similar fashion to what happened with Constantine. Azana renounced his status as a son of the Ethiopian war god and put a cross instead of traditional symbols on all of his coins. Azana actually then asked Athanasius of Alexandria to send a bishop down, perhaps a competitor bishop to the shipwrecked ward. But in any case, this tradition continued until 1951, where the only bishop in Ethiopia was sent by the Coptic Church in Egypt. This meant often that bishops had very limited real power since they were ethnically, culturally, and often even linguistically outsiders. Instead, abbots or kings tended to lead the church. Now, the Ethiopian church claimed Semitic roots. It claimed to have connections with diaspora Jews who were sent away from the Holy Land during the Assyrian and Babylonian conquest. It's really a fascinating story. As a result of this, uh, much of Ethiopian Christianity has a distinctively Jewish flavor. Torah is often followed, including kosher food laws and various festivals. In fact, Ethiopia claims to have the Ark of the Covenant. Not necessarily the official government claiming to possess that, but culturally, Ethiopians believe that the Ark is hidden somewhere within their territory. And for all I know, it is. Now, you may scoff a little bit at the possibility that Ethiopians are, in fact, Semitic in origin, but there's an interesting piece of history that suggests that maybe there's something to this. You see, on several different occasions in the last 50 or so years, the nation of Israel has allowed large numbers of Ethiopian uh, refugees and immigrants into the nation based on the claim that these refugees are not only practicing Jewish religion, but actually contain some sort of ethnic continuity with the people of Israel. So, African Christianity in Ethiopia is already noticeably different from European Christianity that tended to be fairly anti-Semitic. Coptic Christianity in Egypt was originally protected uh, from too many Muslim human rights violations due to the strength of the Ethiopian Christian kingdom to the south. In fact, this kingdom was so powerful that for a time, while Muslims had conquered much of what is today Spain and were threatening to press into Europe on its eastern border, for a time, Europeans actually hoped that the great kings of Christian Ethiopia would come to their rescue to deliver them from the Muslims. Unfortunately, over time, the military power of the Ethiopians diminished, which resulted in increasing restrictions on Christian freedoms in Muslim-controlled Coptic territories. That being said, Ethiopia is distinctive in that it remains the only African nation that was not conquered by European political powers. Italian efforts to colonize this region met with military defeat on several occasions, to the point that Ethiopia to this day has that badge of honor 
of never being a colonial territory. So that is Christianity in Ethiopia, and it's only one of several important Christian cultures known throughout Africa. Another that we'll address is far newer than that of Axum in the 300s, and that is the emergence of Christianity in the Congo. The Congo is located uh, on the southern half of Africa along the coast of the Atlantic Ocean. As a result of this, it was subject to colonial efforts by the Portuguese initially, who landed in the Kingdom of the Congo in 1483. A Congolese king was soon baptized, but he then almost immediately recanted the faith. However, his son, Mvimba Nzinga, became a lifelong Christian, later known as King Alfonso I. He reorganized the Congolese calendar around Christian holy days and built churches across his land. It's not to say that there were not struggles with the Christianization of the Congo. Africans tended to value large families in this region, but the Catholic Church would not allow priests to marry, even in the Congo. Priests were not allowed to avoid the celibacy requirements that had been imposed on priests with increasing diligence in the Middle Ages. As a result, it was extremely difficult to recruit local priests. Combined with this, the Portuguese, who initially were merely exploring, soon expanded into the slave trade. Often, they were notorious for baptizing slaves, supposedly as an act of mercy, so that if they died while in transport across the Middle Passage to the uh, North American colonies, they would still make it to heaven. Therefore, to the Congolese, baptism became associated with slavery. Typically, you were baptized right before you were put on a slave trade boat to be sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. Now, despite this, by 1543, half of the population had been baptized. And while it still struggled to become a fully Catholic nation due to limitations of uh, priests being unable to marry and due to slavery, there is serious evidence that genuine faith was present throughout the region. It's in this context that we see one of the most interesting figures in Congolese Christian history emerge. Her name was Beatrice Kimpavita, and she fits in with the broader uh, emergence of increasing spiritual phenomena that we've discussed in the context of Pentecostalism, Nongawuse, uh, and the Taiping Revolt in China. However, she actually lived considerably earlier than these other figures. Kimpavita was a Congolese medium who had converted to Christianity. She was what is known as a Naganga, a medium of another world. She was baptized by Italian missionaries, and in 1703 she received a dream from Saint Anthony, a Catholic priest. She claims that Anthony told her that Jesus was actually born in the Congo, as were the apostles and beloved saints like Saint Francis of Assisi. Therefore, she criticized images of the saints and even the crucifix for depicting these major figures as being more European in nature. She wanted to reform Christianity along more moral lines, no doubt including resistance to the slave trade. She also argued that traditional cultural practices of the Congolese should be maintained. In Kimpavita, we see an interesting combination of factors. On the one hand, she had some interests much like the reformers. 
she wanted to deal with some of the moral problems that were still present in the Catholic Church at this time. She also wanted to make the Christian religion more accessible to common peoples. In the context of the Congo, this would require not merely a translation of the scriptures from Latin into the local tongue, which is what is attempted by reformers ranging from Wycliffe to Luther, but it would also require translating many European cultural ideas into a more Congolese context, which is very unlike what was needed in parts of Europe, where there was greater uniformity of thought and culture due to the shared historical heritage of the Roman Empire. As a result, some of the theological ideas proposed by Kempovita were not as acceptable to the Catholic Church as those of the Reformation, which, as we've already seen, were very strongly opposed. The end result of this is that Kempovita was burned to death as a witch in 1706. Kempovita, along with a number of other figures that we could address, spark what is an ongoing discussion not only in Catholic theology, but in the theology of Protestants and Orthodox as well. And that is the discussion of how it is that we enculturate the ideas that we have received from the Christian tradition into new cultural locations. After all, it is certainly the fact that many of the ideas we've discussed were influenced by Greek and Roman culture, or later by certain features of European medieval culture or even with the regularly uh, anti-establishment and authoritarian influences of the United States uh, structuring certain revivalist theology. How can the cultures of Africa and Asia and Latin America influence theology in a comparable way without changing the overall outcome of the doctrines? Unfortunately, this is a question that we cannot fully address in the context of historical theology, too, but if you're interested in it, we discuss it some in the Introduction to Missions course, as well as in a course called Theology and Society. Moving on, though, to continue my lectures. So what happened to Congolese Christianity after Kempovita died? Well, normally when there is syncretism in Europe, that is, when non-Christian religious beliefs, superstitions, or cultural elements are combined with Christian beliefs, typically in that context there would be a process of catechism, where intentional education, often by groups like the Jesuits, would attempt to bring the common people's beliefs back in line with the official teaching of the church. Protestants tended to have a similar mindset, and something like this must have been in mind when Wesley, for example, began his circuit preaching riding around across large geographic areas on his brief stint into the colonies, trying to return the colonial peoples who had been cut off from much church teaching to the more traditional teachings of the church. Now, I'm sorry to say, in an African context, this was not the approach. When syncretism is found in Africa, those responsible are condemned and occasionally burned as witches like Kempovita. But more often than not, the condemnation would follow with their enslavement and with the further increase of the transatlantic slave trade. Now, this raises some interesting questions about North American Black Christianity, because it seems indisputable that at least some of the slaves brought across the Atlantic were actually already Christian prior to their arrival in the so-called New World. Unfortunately, to my knowledge at least, 
historical details to allow us to assess the extent of this enslavement of African Christians uh, is not available. I'd like to conclude with a, a brief note on something I've already mentioned, and that was the near demise of the Ethiopian Empire at the hand of the Italians until a military victory preserved things. The Ethiopian Empire and Church certainly did face periodic colonial influence in the sense that there would either be economic pressures or military incursions that would try and persuade the Ethiopians to act in a particular manner. However, at no point in time were they under sustained control and influence by any single colonial power. In 1878, uh, the first of several important events that I want to mention happened. John IV presided over a church council to help resolve Christological disputes. I have to say I know that this has been significant in Ethiopian Orthodoxy's understanding of Christology, but I've yet to be able to find any translated manuscripts of what issues were at stake, uh, which is quite disappointing to me. What this shows, though, is that there's continuing theological development and discussion in an Ethiopian Orthodox context that unfortunately has been largely cut off from the larger Christological discussions that we've had in this class. No doubt there are insights that would be a benefit to the church, but translations are simply not available. A mere 18 years after this, in 1896, Ethiopia faced the last threat of European invasion. So very close events right in a time where Ethiopia is very theologically active and where Christianity there is still developing its ideas, Italy moves in, often with the depiction of African nations being unchristian. Italian invading forces were defeated by King Menelik II. And as I said, to this day, Ethiopians remain free. This was an important act across Africa because it allowed non-Christians and Christians alike to recognize that Europeans were not invincible. This military victory is one of the few that allowed non-European peoples to remain free from an intended colonial conquest. And so to this day, in various majority world civil rights movements, and even efforts in the United States, the example of Ethiopia remains a banner to the hope that European aggression and North American aggression at this point often by white Christians, can in fact be resisted. On that note, that's all the content I have to update you on some of the historical events that happened in Christianity in Africa. I know there's certainly more to share, but one side effect of making this class focus primarily on doctrine is that many of the more specific historical details have to be left aside or treated more briefly. However, here or anywhere else, if you'd like to learn further information, feel free to send me an email and I'll try to refer you to some helpful, relevant sources. Otherwise, be well until I next see you in Zoom or communicate by email. All the best.